Let's uh, take our Bibles and open them to the book of Matthew, please. Matthew chapter 5 is where we are in our series on the, the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew. We've been in the Sermon on the Mount for several weeks and we are still in it. We're in chapter 5, verse 43 through 48. You'll find that on page 1503 in that book rack Bible in front of you if you need help finding your way there. Take a minute. So just a little review, last week we opened this section because these two paragraphs where we were last week and what we're doing this week is talking about how do we deal with difficult people. And I asked the question last week, how many of us have difficult people in our lives? And we raised our hands, do we this morning? They're still there, I see. Okay, well, they're, we, still have, we all have difficult people. And, and last week we learned, if you look at verse 38, just we'll walk down through it. We learned last week that when, when people come to us that are difficult, when they insult us, when they accuse us, verse 40, when they demand of us things that we think are unfair, verse 41, and when they just simply show up asking for things that we don't know how to deal with, verse 42, uh, we should not push away. We should love. We should give. We should care. We should show intentional kindness to difficult people. Now, I hope we were practicing that this week. Hope we were practicing the new way that Jesus gives to us. And by the way, most of us feel way underqualified, and we all are underqualified. It takes the Spirit of God, the life of God in our lives, transforming us, helping us to live this way. Don't you agree? We can't do this on our own. So today we're going to ratchet it up even further when Jesus says to his disciples and those listening, he says, I want you to love your enemies too. Whoa. Let's talk about that. Let's look at the text. We're going to look at verse 43 through 48. Read along with me. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are, you not, are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers... What are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. All right, now, <laughs> I know some of us think, no way! How do we do this? How? This seems absolutely impossible. Like I said a minute ago, it is. Apart from the Spirit of God, it is impossible. The gospel's impossible. Living a life for Christ is impossible. Only until he comes into our lives and begins to transform us is any of this possible. There's some rich, beautiful teaching in this passage, but let's just look at the big nugget. The big nugget is love your enemies. And I know some of us right now feel like we're pushing back already. We just, it just feels counterintuitive to love our enemies. Here's some statements I've read. Maybe you've seen these before too. They make a lot of sense. Love your enemies and you won't have any more enemies. <laughs> or how about love your enemies after all, you made them. Think about that one for a second. The pastor stood before a church, crowded church, and he said, how many of us have lots of enemies? And a lot of hands went up. And then he said, how many of us have just some enemies? And fewer hands went up. How many of us just have a few enemies, just one or two, and just a trickle of hands? And he says, how many of us have no enemies? And one guy in the back raised his hand. He goes, sir, come on down here. The guy's 98 years old. How is it that you lived a life with no enemies? And here was his response. They're all dead. 
<laughs> now, <laughs> if your strategy is to outlive your enemies, you're not following the scripture. <laughs> okay, so Jesus says some powerful things here, and this is, this is huge. What I see in this passage are three, uh, three main movements that will walk us through some principles, and I'm gonna take them a little out of order just so that for the logic of it, you'll see kind of what we're talking about. Let's start with verse 43. If you're taking notes, I want you to see here in verse 43 that most people believe it's their God-given right to choose whom they will love. That's the way most of us think. Now, Jesus begins this little teaching like he does so often in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard that it was said. Now, there he's, he's using a phrase that sometimes quotes scripture that the people of Jesus' day, the religious people of Jesus' day were quoting, but sometimes it wasn't scripture that they were quoting, it was just a popular belief of the day. And so, Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, love your enemies, uh, excuse me, uh, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, let's, let's talk about the first part of that statement. Love your neighbor. This comes right out of Leviticus 19.18. I'm going to read the verse. Don't turn there. Just let me read it to you and just see if it's familiar. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself, says the Lord. Now, how many of you have heard the phrase before, love your neighbor? Just raise your hand. Most of us, almost all of us, probably all of us, love your neighbor. And we know that. That comes right from Scripture. As far back as the law of Moses, when the law of Moses was given, God's people were called to love their neighbor. Yeah, we got it. But Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now let me ask you that. Where does the Scripture come to us that tells us to hate our enemies? <laughs> I just save you a little time. You won't find it. God never commands his people to hate their neighbors. He commands them to love their neighbors. Now, it gets a little messy because when you walk through the Old Testament, you see a lot of places where there was a lot of God-haters that God stepped in to judge. And often he used his people to judge them. The Amorites, the Amalekites, people, real people, real cultures that were uh, an affront to the holiness of God. They spurned God, their idolatrous worship. They rejected his his teachings, and, and on and on it goes, and God eventually steps in and he judges those nations. And somehow, over time, as God, God's people witnessed the judgment on the nations of the world, and even prophetic scripture that talks about God's coming judgment on the wicked and the evil of the world and, and so forth, we start thinking, God's people starts thinking, well, hey, if, if God has enemies, well, there are enemies too. And we start having a mindset of entitlement to hate people that hate God or that God is pronouncing judgment on. And along the time that Jesus came along here in Matthew chapter five, it had become so popular, it was almost like breathing in and out. <gasps> we breathe in, love our neighbors, we breathe out, we hate our enemies. And it just felt normal, it just felt right. Now for people that believe this way, if you happen to be a person that believes this way, then guess what? Uh, some people are easy to love, so you love them. You got people in your life that are easy to love? Absolutely. People that maybe your family, maybe friends, people that think like you, talk like you, people that you easily connect with, you have things in common with, beliefs that are similar, easy to love. And people that are easy to love, if we believe this, it's our God-given right to choose who we love, 
then we love the people that we find it comfortable to love. Others are not so easy to love. We've all got people in our lives that are just, it take a little more work. You might call them EGRs, extra grace required. People that when you're around, they just grate you, they incense you, they just do things in your life that just make you want to pull your hair out sometimes. And, and they're, they're all over. And, and if there are people that are difficult to love, then choo- we choose typically not to love them. Now, when Jesus was speaking to his people, the Jews, here's something that the Romans thought about the Jews. Now, first century, a historian named Tacitus, writing just after the time of Christ, actually, and I'm quoting from him, he speaks about how the Jews as a people group hated the whole human race. This is what he said. He said, they, speaking of the Jews, readily show compassion on their own countrymen, but they bear to all others the hatred of an enemy. So really tight with the people of their group, their community, but man, they, could ju- they had a reputation of hating those that were on the outside. Now, now, when you think about people that are difficult to love in your life, you might think about people that do evil things, that hurt others, of course. We think of people like that. But I've noticed lately, there's like an entitlement that people feel even now toward law enforcement. Uh, with all the injustices that have happened with some officers that have made very unethical decisions and things that are terrible and should be brought to account, absolutely. There are some people that feel entitled just to hate all law enforcement. All those people are that way. Anyone in authority is that way. And we just want to have this entitlement. I can hate them because look, I can hate all police officers because look at what happened in Ferguson or whatever. Just put in the, put in the, the statement. And all those injustices need to be reckoned with and it's a terrible situation. But we may feel that way toward politicians too whom we don't agree with the way they run our country or the way they run our state or the way they run our city or our own community. And so we feel entitled to simply hate those people that simply don't align with us. We may hate, though we don't admit this, we may not admit this, we may hate homosexuals or people that aspire to gay marriage. We hate, we hate, we hate. And most people, even those who are religious, are okay with that. Now just let that sink in for just a minute. Jesus is speaking to religious people here, and he's saying, you've heard that it was said, love your enemy, but love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. But I say to you, now he's going to break it wide open here. He says, I say to you, love your enemies. Well, now this gets a little wobbly too, because some of the things I've just mentioned when it comes to moral issues and so forth, even when the church speaks the truth in love, sometimes we are called, you know, that we're hate, we give hate speech. There are people that troll our website to see what we believe and where we stand on certain moral issues. And when they find out our stance on certain moral issues, they just rake us over the coals. And they'll go public, they'll write the newspaper, editorial, and all those kinds of things. Because in speaking the truth in love, sometimes you're going to take some hits there too. You're haters. Now, I think this is, this is something that all of us ought to be concerned about. And this should bother all of us to some degree today because in the eyes of the world, we are those people. We are those people. We are people known primarily for being hateful of people that are not like us. 
And I wrestle with this, and I hope you do too. I'm inviting you into the circle to wrestle. And, and what Jesus tells us here is that we need to somehow, the way we live our lives, we need to overturn the reputation that is in some of our lives, that it is just absolutely my right to hate this person. And, you know, it's not even that we say, well, we hate the sin and love the sinner. It's that we end up hating the sinner too. I mean, we, we are really good at polarizing and drawing lines. I am. So are you. Jesus is speaking to us, and he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to love your enemies. Now, that comes down to the second main movement of the text, if you're taking notes. In verses 44, 46, and 47, here's what we see. Jesus commands his followers to love everyone. Say the word everyone. Even their enemies. Now let's talk about who is an enemy here, because some of you might think, I don't have any enemies. Uh, the word enemy in the Hebrew language, Old Testament, the word sar, T-S-A-R, the word in the Greek language is ekthros, and the words simply don't necessarily denote uh, terrorist, murderer. It more likely describes one who brings distress, one who opposes someone, one who attacks or has an adversarial spirit, one who hates, one who mistreats. Ekthros. Jesus said, love those guys, those folks. If you've got anybody in your life that's opposing you, being adversarial, has a demeanor of dour complaint as they come into your presence and it's just sticky to be around them and it just, ah, just kind of gets you always nervous about their presence, Jesus said, love those folks. It's volitional. It's not feeling. You say, well, I, I don't feel like loving them. <laughs> I get that. We don't feel like loving. But Jesus is not saying, wait till the feeling comes around. He's giving a command. He's saying, love is volitional. And by the way, this might be encouraging for some of you, although I, it's a little sad that it is. He's not saying that we need to like them. <laughs> He's saying we need to love them. Like is an emotion. Like, you know, to, be a feel, uh, uh, to have affinity towards somebody is, is more than just a choice. It, it's a real two-way street. But Jesus doesn't command that we like our enemies. He says, love your enemy, because love is a choice. Now, to get a little more background onto this, can I invite you over to Luke chapter 6? Just go a couple of books over, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Luke chapter 6, 27 and 28. Great to hear those pages turning. Um, Luke 6, this is the same context, it's the Sermon on the Mount that Luke records, but he gives a little more detail, and, I'll, and you'll see what I mean here, because you might be asking yourself the question, how do we love our enemies? And Jesus gives some practical things here. He says, first of all, he says, love your enemies, verse 27, do good to those who hate you. Well, there's a great objective, do good to those who hate you, verse 28, bless those who curse you and pray for those who mistreat you. Well, there's a three-point outline. There's a three-point application that is really powerful, isn't it? First of all, do good to them. If, if you've got enemies in your life, people that stress you out, people that distress you, people that create worry and anxiety, people that are opposed to you, people that you know, are adversarial to you, people that may attack your life, your character, whatever, do good to them. Do good to them. Um, you know, the story that immediately came to my mind was the story 
in 2006, I think it was, when the little Amish school in Pennsylvania was attacked by that madman, walked in, tied up these kids, 10 kids, 10 girls, let the boys go, 10 girls, and shot them all, and then killed himself. It's a terrible tragedy. Five of them died. Five of them were incredibly wounded and still suffer from uh, lifelong injuries. Um, but do you remember what happened in that community? This Amish community got around the, the, the wife of the man that did this heinous deed. They brought meals to her. They sent notes and cards saying, we love you and we forgive your husband. It was, it was across the United States and around the world of the way this Amish community did good to those that were really rightfully, or to that person that was their enemy. And even this one, I believe the wife of that man went on to write a book, and it escapes me, but it's, it's a beautiful story of how the love of that community transformed her life and has shown her in a new way the love of God. We do good to those who oppose us. How about being kind to them? Jesus said, bless those who curse you. That's, a, that's a, an expression of words. It's a, it, when somebody speaks negatively to us, we tend to want to speak negatively back. You say something bad to me, I'm going to say something bad to you. Jesus said, bless those who curse you. Bless. Turn it around. Bring a smile to a frown. Bring a kind word to a, a, a word of, of cynicism or or negativity. Words change things around. Uh, we, we joust with our words. We do it with sarcasm and humor uh, and, and mockery and mic, uh, mimicry. We do a lot of things to sort of get people with our words. And Jesus said, oh, how about this? How about blessing people? Bring them a blessing. Say the word. Bless the people. I mean, this is, think about the person in your life that's giving you some trouble. Why not think of ways, even in that moment, to bless them? It's hard to do. It's hard to do even that without looking like you're mocking them in some way. Especially if your character is one of being negative yourself. So it may take a little time for people to actually trust that what they're seeing in you is real. <laughs> because they might be saying, okay, you know, look, that's, that's really low that you would compliment me after I, you know, I don't know, it's, uh, and then Jesus said, pray for them. Not just be good to them, be kind to them, but pray for them. Something happens when we pray for our enemies. First of all, it gives us a softer heart toward them. I mean, it's hard to pray for people that you don't like. Unless you're praying like, Lord, bring fire down on their... You know, that's, that's how sometimes we pray for people like that. We, we take on the imprecatory psalms, you know. But God is not into vendetta. And God is a God of wrath. Yes, he does. But watch this. I to always look through the lens of the way God has seen us. Let's take our Bibles, if you're familiar enough, to go to Romans chapter 5. And you should be. If not, look at the table of contents. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Romans chapter 5. And in verse 9, we'll pick up. Well, let's pick up in verse 8. Romans 5, verse 8, familiar text. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Aren't you glad? Verse 9, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved through God's 
saved from God's wrath through him. For if, when we were God's enemies, oh, hmm, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. I'm pointing out, and I just brought you to that text, so that you would remember, as I need to be reminded daily, that I was once an enemy of God. And we don't, we don't tend to think that way. We were an enemy of God. We were lost in our sins and transgressions. We were dead in our sins and transgressions. But God, being rich in mercy and grace, made us alive together with Christ. So we look at the filter of God's redeeming love to us when we look at those around us who give us trouble and who make our blood curdle at times. And we remember that just as we've been enemies of God, so we've received the forgiveness of Christ. So we must take that into a heart as we, as we address those that are around us. And that becomes a beautiful thing. Um, in fact, Jesus says there in verses 46 and 47 that, in, now back to Matthew chapter five, that when we love selectively, when we choose to love this person and not to love this other person, we're actually no different than those we don't love at all. We're just like others who don't love the outsider. Uh, everybody loves their own. Everybody, I mean criminals. I mean people that do heinous things together are loyal to each other. They're just, you know, Jesus picks that out. He says the pagans do this. Everybody, everybody's got their own little group. So let's just think about this from the, a macro vision of the church right now. Just for a minute, let me just ask you the question. Are we a loving church? And before you answer that really quickly, let, hear my heart. First of all, I think we are. A lot of love goes on here and a lot of expressions of love. And I mean, things like yesterday and I mean, the list is endless. I am so grateful to be around a body of people that really do get it, I believe, by and large. And we all fall off at times. We all miss up, mess up and all that. But by and large, I think we've got it. But if your quick answer to my question, are we a loving church? You say, you think, calculate, and then you go, yeah, we're a loving church. Chances are you answered that way because you immediately thought of your circle of friends that love you and you feel loved by them. And there's nothing wrong with that. But, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we're a loving church just because we love our little group. Like, let me just, I've written some things in my notes, I'm just gonna read them just so they come out as crystal clear as they were in my mind when I wrote them down. Are, are we loving to new people? When new people come among us, do they feel that love? Uh, what about people that haven't found Jesus and are a little rough around the edges? What about people that don't dress like us or haven't shaved or showered in the last few days or maybe in the last few weeks? What if someone holds a political view that's different than your own? What if someone drives an expensive car and has lots of money? What if someone drives a clunker and looks like they're living on food stamps? Um, there, there may be some people around here that don't feel quite as loved as our quick, oh yeah, we're a loving church. 
So maybe, can I suggest that there's more work for all of us to do in this area? Uh, I've said this in the past, and I've tried to reenact this all the time, and this is a great Sunday to do it. We should reenact, or or, or, I don't know what the word I'm looking for here is, we should put into practice the three-minute rule which says, after we break from a meeting, whether it's in a community group or in a large setting like this, after we break, there should be three minutes before we go to our circle of friends. What do we do during that time? We go to people that we don't know, that we've never met, that we don't even know their name, don't know their story, and we just take three minutes, three minutes, and we just see how people are. Wouldn't that be cool? if we really practice that, because then nobody could get out of here without, without really genuinely being embraced. And someone in the midst of that kind of interaction is going to discover the reality of that truly loving person that has taken a minute of time. But most of us are we're just a little house blind. And we tend to run out, and I do the same thing. I mean, some of you run to me because you know me, and I, I'm very happy to engage you in those moments. But I want you to know as a pastor, I'm, I have a high attentive rate to people that are around that are not feeling that same kind of love and acceptance. And I want you to as well. And not just here, but when we're out in the community, that we represent not this church, although we do represent this church, but that we represent the name of Jesus Christ. And when people meet us in the marketplace, in the job, in the, at work, in the cubicle, in the lunchroom, on the BART train, what people see is, is who we are and we are loving people, no matter what. We reach out, we express, we, we care, we step out. And that becomes very powerful. I mentioned the story of Ed Tracy. He has a twin brother who I've really gotten to know in the last couple of weeks. Um... And I've spent a lot of intimate time with him because his brother, who just passed, has had a profound impact on his life. And not as a Christ follower, his twin brother is, uh, but last week opened his heart on the basis of watching what had happened in Ed's life and just sort of seeing the culture of this place and what God's been doing in his life. He opened his heart to Christ. And, and had the privilege of just walk, walking him, watching him walk over that threshold. And he told me, sitting out here in our cafe this past week, with a big smile, talking to one of our guys that he had just met while he's been here. He said, I'm, he lives in Seattle. He goes, I'm thinking about relocating with my family down here to the Bay Area because this community is just unbelievable. Wow. That's the kind of thing that ought to be happening boop, 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 all over the place. Because we are the community of faith. We love like nobody knows how to love. We have love in our hearts for people that are not like us. And and it's not our job to change anybody. Our job is to love them and let Jesus change them. And I need that reminder every day. So it's a shallow and fruitless way to live when we just are selective in our love. Which brings us to the last thing. How are we doing? We're good. We're going to just finish this up. Come down to this last thing, verse 45 and 48. Uh, When we love those we'd rather not, we emulate something of the nature of God. This is cool. I mean, we actually become like God. Let's remember, if you're taking notes, that God's love is revealed through his children. 
That's the way his love is revealed. I mean, rarely. I don't even know how it would be revealed otherwise. It's revealed through his children. Um, Some of your translation, look at verse 45a. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Love your enemies, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Uh, Some of your translations say that you may become sons. That's not a good translation. Because it is not becoming, it's, it's who we are. That you may be, that it may be revealed to those around you, that you belong to me, Jesus says. That while you at once were unworthy subjects of his love, you have become a subject of his love by what he has done and what he alone has done. Secondly, his love knows no boundaries. Verse 45b, the sun comes up on the righteous and the wicked. The rain pours down on them too. So our love should know no bounds. We reflect the love of God in his very nature when our love shows no bounds. Now, does that mean that there should be, there, there cannot be boundaries? There should be some boundaries. There's healthy boundaries. I mean, I wish I could take another 10 minutes just for some of you that might feel like this is just sort of casting to the wind. People that have been abusive in our lives or things that have been very, very hurtful physically, emotionally in our lives. I'm not suggesting that we sort of lay open the, 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 you know, the, the runway for people to just sort of steam over our lives. But watch this. If we get this right, we realize that there should be no discrimination on our part as to who deserves love and who doesn't. Sometimes the loving thing is a careful boundary that we have created. But most times it's releasing that whatever we think needs to take place and just simply either blessing or doing good or praying for those individuals. And lastly, his love is is perfect. And that's why in verse 48, which seems like an impossibility, I want to give you a little hope here. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Uh, Most of us have looked at this verse all of our lives as a command and not a promise of fulfillment. And it is the latter. In the Greek text, it's in the future indicative which means Jesus is not only commanding that we aspire to a life of perfection, knowing that we'll never get there in this life, but the promise that one day he will make us perfect. It's, it's the promise. It's inspiration as well as instruction. Ephesians 5, be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Be imitators. That's what this text is about. Okay. Frederick Buchner, one of my favorite writers, says this, and let me just quote, this comes out of a the Reformed Expository Commentary on the Book of Matthew by Daniel Doriani. He quotes Frederick Buechner. Listen. The love for equals is a human thing, of friend for friend, brother for brother. It is to love what is lovely and loving. The world smiles. The love for the less fortunate is a beautiful thing. The love for those who suffer, for those who are poor, the sick, the failures, the unlovely, This is compassion, and it touches the heart of the world. The love for the more fortunate is a rare thing. To love those who succeed when we fail. To rejoice without envy with those who rejoice. The love of the poor for the rich. 
of the black man for the white man. The world is always bewildered by this kind of love. And then there is the love for one's enemies. Love for the one who does not love you, but mocks, threatens, and inflicts pain. The torturer's love for the torturer. This is God's love. And this love conquers the world. Let's go to prayer.